I remember not being saved about 40 years ago. I remember that. I went to church. I was a good Lutheran, by the way. I was better than my sister-in-law. <laughs> they were bad Lutherans. We were good ones. And I loved being in church. In fact, met my wife in church, in choir. Loved to sing in choir, loved to be in church, except in hunting season, then I justified being with my dad. Yeah. But I remember not being a believer. We're here because of the work that Jesus Christ had done for us. Is that right? Because he gave his life for us, and like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you, you beg of you, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin for us so that we in him might be righteous, have the righteousness of God. What a deal. I give my sin to him, he gives his righteousness back to me all because he loves me. And that's the deal. We're here because we know him, we love him, want to serve him, want to make disciples for him in our families, in the world, and you maybe brought someone here to introduce them to our Savior, and we're glad that you're here to hear about Jesus Christ, which is why we're here. God has blessed us with three children and amazing, two amazing sons-in-law and one amazing daughter-in-law, and our oldest daughter and our daughter-in-law turned 43 years old yesterday, same day, same year about six hours apart. So I'm getting really, really old. <laughs> Got 43-year-old children, a couple of our grandkids over here, and then we have 11 of them by God's grace and mercy, and we love every one of them. And Addie, the second youngest, uh, she's five. Her mom is Amy, her husband is Christopher. And uh, several months ago, before they had uh, Octavia, Addie and brother Finn and Amy were outside uh, the parking lot at Sam's Club in Ankeny. And Addie was pressing Amy to not want to go to hell. And so Amy, as a mom, said, we'll talk about it at home, just kind of put She said, no, I don't want to go to hell and want to go to heaven. She pushed her off again, and Addie got serious with her. And so she made a profession of faith in Christ in the parking lot of Sam's Club in Ankeny. They went into the store... Addie's been saved for like 15 minutes. She asked the clerk selling her piece, do you know Jesus or are you going to hell? <laughs> now, she's have to work on a little bit the approach, but she was, this was now a natural thing for her to do. So kudos to her, shame on us for not being that bold. Got an interesting text from a gal in our church about their son, Wyatt, um, I think John is here tonight, his dad. Yeah. She said, I do believe the Lord might be calling your granddaughter, Addie, to the missions field. Ha, ha, ha. After talking with Wyatt, their son, more last night, about Wyatt's profession of faith, um, about that with me, he said, I know. I already talked to Addie. <laughs> they're, they're kids. I asked him what he meant, and he said that yesterday morning he was talking to Addie, and she said she had been saved, and asked Wyatt if he was saved too. Wyatt said no. Adam told him probably the same thing we've been telling him all these years. <laughs> he thought about it, and then at Easter dinner, he heard his great-grandpa tell the story of his salvation 70-plus years ago on that Easter Sunday. Wyatt thought about it some more, then at bedtime, 12 hours after talking to Addie, decided that Addie was right. He'd ask Jesus to save him too, and so he did. I thought you would like to know that. Isn't that exciting? That's all the work of God in the heart of a, what believe, a new believer whose heart was chained by the gospel and interested in other people. And I want to talk about a relationship whether unsaved, fill-in-the-blank, neighbors, family, friends, co-workers, people you do business with, our relationship with them to make disciples of them that Jesus commanded us to do. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We'll begin there tonight. My theme for tonight, today, tomorrow is, as for me and my house, it's a quote from Joshua at the end of his life. He was an old man, not far from death. 
and pleaded with Israel um, that they would no longer serve the gods of their fathers, they would no longer serve the gods of the Amorites, and that they would choose to serve God and fear Him. He said, but whatever you do, as for me and choose you today whom you serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was his confession. So talk about discipleship at home and what that means. We'll talk about this evening, our relationship with our unsaved friends, introducing Christ to them. So it's just some opening thoughts. What do we mean by discipleship? Well, disciple is a learner, a follower of teachings or a person an adherent, meaning someone that clings to somebody, an imitator, uh, someone characterized by devotion, affection, obedience, service, replication, I mean they make disciples themselves, and, and more. Now, biblically, um, Christ commissioned us to make disciples. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all eth- ethnos, all ethnicities, Baptize them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always in teaching them to observe all things and commanding you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission, to make disciples of all people groups around the globe. So a disciple here is a follower of Christ, someone who knows Him, who's heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, believed in Him, someone who knows Christ, and now is a follower of Him as a disciple of Christ. We know Him. In this, in this passage, it's also someone who's identified with him through the waters of baptism to publicly identify that Christ belongs to me. He died and buried and rose again on my behalf and identify with him and his people called the church to abide of Christ. So we identify with him. That means someone who's devoted to him and loves him and life centered on him, dependent on him, lives for him, serves him, and here continues to learn. So he's a learner. We teach the learners. So they learn how to obey Him. They learn what God wants them to do with their life. To observe all, observe, the word observe means to do, to keep, to guard, to obey the one that died for me to live out His commands. That's the great commission to make a follower of Jesus Christ. And God said, go make one. <laughs> he said, go make them. It's in the active voice. He said, go, that's the premise of this chapter, this verse, to go make disciples of Christ. And then he tells us how it's going to happen. There's a process here that's a template for how we make disciples. And, of course, we understand that God does all the work and He promises His presence. He promises His power. But we are to do it in the process of going. So, and the word go is not a command. It's a participle. Does that impress you? That's just to wake you up if you're falling asleep. We make disciples by going. Or in the process of going, as you're going, make a disciple. So this is... In a sense, a sub-command, the process, in the process of going, we make a disciples. We bring them the gospel that Christ died for their sins, and we share Christ with them, which means it's not limited to a specific time or place. It's as you're going. We don't wait for them to come to us. It's a natural part of your life. In the process of going here and there, living out our life, where we work, where we go, where we fish, where we hunt, where we golf, where we make disciples as we're going. It's a radical shift in how we view getting the gospel out and what we've been used to as a movement. There's a day when we invited people to church and they came in mass and we had, uh, not to have met, but they came in, in, in crowds. <laughs> okay, I had to clarify that. Lutherans are close to Catholic, but we're better than Catholic. I, just, I, we, I thought that. I actually thought that because we're reformed. I digress. (laughs) But there were those days when you invited people to church and had camp meetings, and God brought them in, and God used that to see many people come to Christ. A lot of churches were planted. Uh, Our churches were built, and they grew on the cornerstone of many churches. It's 1962. It's a pretty common date. And that's how it was done, and God blessed it like a great awakening, and then it didn't work as much anymore. But it's always been biblical in the process of going make a disciple. And I talked to pulpit committee after pulpit committee, and you have 90 churches in the IARBC. As of today, having done this for eight and a half years, 57 have called a new pastor. And I get to work with them, most of them, as we build friendship with them. And we walk through the roadmap of calling a pastor, and we talk about maybe the life and history of the church and where to go from here. And I always ask them, um, what's your plan for reaching 
people with the gospel. One church said, we don't have a plan. I said, okay, we can work with that. And the most common answer, regardless of size of church, urban or rural, is we hope they come and we hope they come back. I don't think they've ever read the process of going, make them. So I presented them, how about if you try to connect with your neighbor or the guy that sells you uh, seed corn or the guy that works on your lawnmower and develop a friendship with them, find a way to care about them and connect with them and cultivate a friendship and engage them in conversation, present Christ and say, well, that's different. I said, different than what? Not different than the Bible, but we haven't done that. And because of our churches have declined because of a loss of a gospel focus and hoping that they just come. Now, if they come, we want to go to them. I pastored in Carroll for 23-plus years. My wife always adds the plus, so that's for her benefit. It was slightly over 23, under 24. Uh, anyway, this is for her benefit. And probably two-thirds of people that came to Christ were visitors at our church, but none of them were saved at church. In their home, in our home, in people's home, opened a Bible study, and they professed Christ somewhere other than in our church. And then there were neighbors and, and waiters and waitresses, which is what we called them back then. And there were taxidermists and dentists and all along the way, people we met in the process of going. So that's how it's done. Then we are to, to baptize them, to immerse them and identify with Christ and His people. Then we are to teach them. The word teach means to give instruction. It is systematic in nature, line upon line, precept upon precept. So you get to lead someone to Christ. What's your plan for growing them? And you're thinking, oh, that's never going to happen. It can happen. Now, there's a fear of sharing Christ and rejection. What about the fear of what do I do when I get one? That's like fishing. What do you do when you get one hooked? I was up in Wisconsin over the summer and fishing in Door County Peninsula in the Bay of Green Bay and Lake Michigan. It's a smallmouth hatchery. And I caught a big one the first night and didn't have my net. And I thought, I'll just pick it up like a crappie. <laughs> Snap. No even picture to show you. I didn't know what to do with one that I'd hook. And so what if I fill up in the eunuch and you find someone who's interested, God, drawing to themselves, and you're the guy to share Christ with them? What do you do then? You got a plan for that? And what if you see someone saved? Who's supposed to grow them? Because they have lots of questions. And you need to have answers for them. And the pad answers are not going to work. Oh, because we've all done it. It's not gonna, it didn't work for me when I got saved, and people did not have answers for me. And so we get to teach them and to grow them. And part of the command is for them to go and make disciples too. This is the replicating nature of disciple making. We are to teach them to, to, to obey the commands of Christ, part of which is go to make a disciple. And so that is the process. I, I call this evangelization, identification, instruction with replication is my take on the Great Commission. Got that? Evangelization, identification, instruction with replication is the cycle of seeing the gospel go forward. And the active voice, J. Vernon McGee, listed him on the staff meetings, right, Doug? He and I pastored together south of Moines. Staff meetings were sometimes road hunting for pheasants. Turn on J. Vernon McGee and kind of that droll voice, you got to discern the needy from the greedy. That's a great line, you know. And he said, go do it is what it says. Go make them. You understand this is the work of God and Christ promises His presence. He's given us His power, divine enablement. We have His indwelling spirit. God does the saving. He does the sanctifying. He enables our serving. But God uses redeemed sinners and puts the gospel in jars of clay to bring the gospel to people. That's the plan. So what does this mean for you and me? As for me and my house, what does that phrase mean? Well, it means personal resolve. If you're taking notes, you can write it in here. When Joshua said, but choose, but as for me and my house speaks of personal resolve. You do what you're going to do, I will do what I'm going to do. A personal resolve. There's such a thing as godly resolve to say this is going to happen in our home. When I went to faith um, like a hundred years ago, not quite, not quite the Old Testament, but it seemed like it. And I remember I was a married student. Our youngest, Amy, had just been born, and our, our kids were like, like 
two weeks and two years and four years old. And uh, this is all brand new to me. I love being at faith. Every class was discipleship for me. This was a wonderful way to grow in, in the Lord. And we heard of, and Sandy homeschooled our kids, and I went to school, taught her everything I learned, so we grew together. We heard of a, a guy who graduated from faith that previous semester. And the day he graduated, his wife left him. I said, not in my house. Maybe for you, but not for me. So we worked hard so we didn't grow apart. That could have happened. And so I, I would go to class and assimilate what I could and teach her what I... She got a free Bible college education, by the way, because of that. And now she's the dean of women at faith, and God has grown her. So there's such a thing as not in my house or yes in my house. You do what you will, but this is personal resolve. It's about personal relationships. As for me and my house is relationships in a home. Me and my household. That means my, my wife and my children and those that we can meet that don't know the Lord. They would be part of I want to use our household to reach. There's such a thing as personal responsibility here. We are going to serve the Lord. We're going to disciple, we're going to teach, we're going to commit to making disciples. So just a little bit more by way of introduction, discipleship is about people, not just programs and doing church. I remember hearing of a pastor in our fellowship several years ago, took his deacons to a leadership training seminar, and they came back, and the deacons said to the pastor, pastor, we're really great at doing church and terrible at making disciples. Got that? We're too busy doing church and going and attending and doing that, and yet no disciple-making, and they got it. It's about people. It, it, it is personal, meaning you and me. Now, there's a corporate culture you can have in a church, a disciple-making culture where it's taught and encouraged, but a person reaches a person, it's personal. You attach yourself to a person, and you become, you become your version of them. As my wife, Sandy, she has a great impact on the lives of all of these young gals and sometimes young men, and as they come into her office, and they want, to be, they want to be their version of her. They want to dress like her, and they, they want to act like her. They want to say, how do, we, how do I become you? They said, well, it's going to take a few years. It took a few years to get here, but they want to be her. That's discipleship. It's personal, and that's going to take time. And we can be so good at going to church, and we should, and sitting in a pew and serving and giving and praying, but who are you investing in and who's investing in you is personal. That's what God intended, and it must be a priority. It, has to, it, it is our mission. It is the mission of the church of Christ is to make followers of Him. Everything you do should be measured by your success at that. We gather to be equipped. We gather to worship our Savior. We gather to encourage one another to do what? To make disciples when we leave the building or maybe in the building. It is a process. It can take long periods of time. We're not just getting decisions. We're making disciples. So the decision-making is along the way to decide to come to Christ, to decide to get baptized, to decide to join a church, to decide to love Christ. But it's a long process. And so we have to be committed for the long haul with individuals and the process. There's no microwave solution to a person growing godly in Christ. It's a long process that we want to be involved in. He's going, that's a lot of work. Yep, <laughs> it is. And yet it's what God wants it to do, and it's rewarding. It requires patience and perseverance along with that. It requires, it must be purposeful, meaning intentional. We have to purpose we're going to do it. And it's not just going to happen. You can get where it becomes a habit, but initially it has to be purposeful. It is supposed to be perpetuating where we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's great when you have spiritual grandchildren, isn't it? <laughs> and that's what goes from generation. This is about generations here. Is to be not just be learning how to be a better believer, learning how to believe so I can lead someone to Christ and invest in them and that they can invest in someone else. And that we're starting to learn but haven't done that well for 50 years. Is to be perpetuating, which a lot of our churches have declined. We got away from a great commission focus of that. God designed it to be generational. 
like in Matthew 28, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, we'll talk about 2 Timothy 2, commit these things to faithful men who teach others also. Four generations in 2 Timothy 2. So it demands that we pray because you can't do this in your own strength. We have to pray and commit this to God. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Nothing of spiritual significance or value can be done without him. You look at the the immensity of the task of making disciples with the raw ingredient of an unsaved person who now knows Christ and now identifies with Christ and he knows he needs to be taught everything about what it means to walk with Jesus. And and we, we get to teach him that. That's a long process, and so we pray that God would give us strength and wisdom to do that. The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Don't want to do that, so we have to pray. So what do we mean by house, or me and my house? Well, it means simply my family. So in my family, there's discipleship. It means me and my wife and my kids. It's in my family. But also at my house, meaning I want my house to be a place where disciples are made and grown. I want to see people saved in my home. I want it to be a saving station and, and, and a growing station. And Sandy and I have been blessed over the years and not always been as faithful as we should be to our shame. And I admit that. But there have been seasons of life where there were people saved in our home and discipled at our home. Our home became a place where people came to Christ and grew and our kids got to watch that and be part of that. So as you may make your home that kind of a place, a place where your children and wife are disciple and a place where people are discipled. And I want that through my, I want my family discipling people. So for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want disciple making children, disciple making grandchildren. I want it to be generational. So that's what it means. And, and as for me, means even if no one else does, if no one else does, and most of Israel did not, you have to choose to do it when no one's, but Jesus will be with you if no one follows. So what should we do? Look, look at our responsibility to the unsaved, to make disciples of them, people that do not know Christ, and, and, and all of us that know him was a time when you didn't. Remember that time? Could have been recently, could have been years ago, at the time we did not know him, but Jesus loved us because he died for us. And someone had a burden for us, someone prayed for us, some took a risk with us, and mustered up the courage and shared Christ, and by the grace of God, we responded and we were saved, and now we were different. So what does that process look like? What does going look like? Well, we can look at Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the eunuch. I've done that in many, many occasions. We could go where God sends us and get involved in people's lives and got in through the Scriptures and give them the gospel. That's basically the outline for Acts chapter 8. That could be what it looks like. We could look at John chapter 4, because Jesus follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Do what I do. So look at John chapter 4, Jesus and one woman. How did he do that? Well, he cared about her, didn't he? He found a way to connect with her, something in common with her. They were both thirsty. And then he cultivated a friendship, engaged her in conversation, began simple, like, could you get me something to drink? That's how he started. He talked about sin. He talked about himself as a Savior. And then he pointed them to him, him, him to herself. And so we can look. Well, I want to look in Matthew chapter 9 today. An account of the life of Christ, a simple account. You probably heard it primarily at missions conferences, which is okay. This is seen as a missionary mandate, but actually it is not. It's not primarily, it could be that it's not primarily a missionary mandate to send laborers into the foreign mission fields of the world. It can be that, but that's not the focus of the passage. So something in the life of Christ is look at Jesus and follow him and how he showed that he cared about lost people because Jesus loves lost people. He loved you and I in spite of our sin. Whether we were drunks or religious churchgoers, it didn't matter. We all fell short of the glory of God. There was no difference. All of us, we were no different than anybody else. But Jesus loved us. And here's an amazing brief text about the life of Christ that shows us in the process of going how he responded to lost people. Let's read Matthew chapter 9 and read what this text tells us about the life of Christ. It begins in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities in the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
When he saw the crowds, when he saw the multitudes, he had compassion. His innards hurt for them. That's a seed of emotion. It's the inner recesses of who you are. His inner recesses hurt for them because he saw them. And he saw them as those that were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Among them were carpenters and machinists and, uh, and farmers and all the different things that people do for a living. And there were moms and dads and kids and fishermen, all the things that define what we do. But he saw them as people that were lost needing him. That's how he saw them. We can group people differently, but he saw them needing him. So number one, you have to see people as lost. That's point number one. And every one of these principles tonight is simple but significant. It, it, these are worth remembering. And so I don't want to get lost in details tonight. He had to see people as lost. When you see multitudes, we see what they do, who they are, what they like to do, how they re recreation, but he saw them as people needing a shepherd, needing him, and see people as lost. Jesus did. And Paul did. When he went to Athens, said his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was given over to idolatry. When I moved to Carroll, it's a big Catholic town. And I saw idols in people's yards. Little shrines to Mary, and not to make fun of them, but it was given over to idolatry. And there were like half of a bathtub buried with a Mary statue in it looking out our back door. I said, wow, I felt like Paul. I read this, and I saw a city given to idolatry. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Paul taught this. That when we come to Christ, we're a new creation in Him. Everything has passed away, all things have become new, right? And so you came to Christ, everything was new. New creation in Him, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So part of that newness, look what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll get there in just a second here. And beginning in verse 14. He said, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded, we've concluded this, that one Christ has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What's he mean by that? Well, part of being a new creation, we see things differently. People are not just flesh and bones. They're spiritual people with an eternal soul that needs saving. So now that we're a new creation in Him, and Christ died for me, living for Him, I see people as people needing a Savior, not just my neighbor who can't take care of his gong and can't, con and can't control his dog. That's not hypothetical. Uh, Craig Keck didn't step on my toes. He stepped all over me today about anger. I have two real hot buttons. One is neighbors that don't control their dog and neighbors that don't care of their lawn. I have one on each side of me. Okay? And they're lost. And one of our neighbors, they foster care dogs. They have them for a few weeks, then they find a home for them. They get a new dog every few weeks. Some of them are okay, some of them are not okay. And we live on a cul-de-sac where the front yards are tiny, but the backyards are big, which is nice, but our front yards are really, really tiny. So when he attaches the, the leash to the dog in the middle of their tiny, the dog can come on my driveway, and the little sliver of grass that's my property that he decides to do his business on. What right does he have to do that? I mean, my hot button, uh, I'll cool off a little bit here. And I, it wasn't a yippy dog, that was just a friendly dog, but they have to do their business and he did it in my yard. It was time, finally time to mow the yard. I let it go for a little bit because it was dry, I let the grass go longer, but it's time to mow. You don't mow over that stuff. That's just uncivilized. So I had three choices. Number one, put it on his doorstep to teach him a lesson. Now I had done that 40 years ago. I had a neighbor like that whose dog did, and I said, I'll teach him. I picked it up. I'm not proud of this. I picked it up, put it on his doorstep to say, there, you can have it back. I never heard from the dog again. So it must have worked, right? 
If I said, well, I ruled that one out because I, I, I'm never going to do it. So that didn't even stay in my mind for very long. That, not a good option. I thank God for His grace to limit what we do when we're angry. So, okay, that, okay, option two is put it on their yard and make them pick it up. The trouble with that is that my yard was long, their yard was short. They would know I did that. Not the highest of motives, but they would know, and then I would ruin a relationship with my unsaved neighbor. So I debated for longer than the first option and just said, no, I better not do that. And it's like God said, just get rid of it. I said, okay. So I got out my, my throwaway rubber gloves and quadrupled back. It's Monday and garbage is Friday. Five days it had to sit in my garbage. This is rattling through my head, but they're lost people. So I just got rid of it. The next day, his wife comes driving and she said, oh, I'm so sorry that our dog did his mess on your lawn. I knew you took care of it. Thank you for your grace in just taking care of it. I was out of town. I could have done it last night, but didn't have time. Thank you for your grace. That was a close one, okay? (laughs) But because they were lost, I didn't do that. When you see people as lost, you have a burden for them, we're diligent praying for them, we behave differently around them. On the other side is the guy that mows at number one on the mower. Nobody even golf courses mow at number one. It's not a golf course. And and I'm guessing because they don't like to mow and it's just something you have to do and so they let it go and then they scalp it, let it go and scalp it. You think they keep the line straight between our yards? It's like this. And I go, every time I get out and Sandy goes, oh, he's going to see it again. And that's how bad it is. They own a very nice restaurant in, in Ankeny and the freshest food you could imagine but don't know how to care for a lawn. That's a moral flaw in my world, you know. <laughs> and especially when they do that on my long scalpment, it never really egregious, just this kind of wavering thing, and they'd always cut it and scalp it, and then the weeds begin to grow. And so I kind of lost my burden for them, to be honest with you. And I had helped them over the years, and they're from a foreign country, from Asia, and they speak little English, and delightful people, and I've actually helped them with a lot of things around the house that I didn't know I could do. And they asked me to help, but I helped them. And so, but I lost caring for them. And so, the grass gets longer while during the drought. It's finally time to mow it, so I'm about to mow mine. But they beat me to the punch and started establishing the line again. And, and, and I went outside, I heard the and I thought, I better go check here. And sure enough, they came in like five feet into my yard, just scalped. And the interesting thing, I wasn't even angry. I said, who is this man? I just calmly went out and no frustration, no annoyance, no sin. Just, we need to talk about this. And they were embarrassed to no end. And, and by God's grace, that was the moment to talk about caring for a lawn. And so we talked about this, and they felt terrible about it. In fact, the other day, they were watering it so it would grow back. They've never watered their lawn. And so this was, it was an egregious mistake, and I just talked casually and said, just curious, why do you cut your lawn so short? He said, no time. I said, okay. I would have said early, well, you need to make time. I didn't say that. I honestly didn't even think of saying that. I said, you know, there's a value to keeping your grass longer. We can talk about that. And I said, well, we just don't have time. And so she gets, and she sees me put fertilizer down, and, and she gets, they said, you teach us, you, we do what you do. You teach us, because we don't know how to do this, is a translation. So now I get to teach them. So for a while, they're just restrained with the outward Reveal anger to the inner simmering anger to no anger at all. That was my progression. Mm -hmm. See people as lost. Number two, we have to serve them. We have to serve them. 
You don't usually think about this for we think about giving them the gospel, sharing Christ's statement. They're going to die soon, you better tell them. <laughs> but that's not always the case. We usually think of giving them the gospel, you know, giving them maybe right up the front, maybe not the best thing to do. But look how Jesus served them in Matthew chapter 9. He went about healing their diseases, and there were times that he fed the, the multitudes, he raised the dead. We don't do that, but he served. The Son of Man came to serve and not be served, and then give his life a ransom for many. Christ served his fellow man. He served those that needed him, and so we need to serve them. Paul did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It won't take a long time here, but I want you to see if Paul understood the need to serve those that we hope to win to Christ. We don't always think that, but it's part of the process of going to reach people with the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, beginning in verse 19. He said, though I am free from all, meaning he has liberty in Christ under bondage to no one, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them to Christ. To the Jews, it became a Jew. He talked about the Greeks. He talked about the weak. He talked about those outside the law. He said in verse 23, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some of them. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with the blessings. What he didn't mean was that the end justifies the means or that compromise was in order or, didn't, or he'd accommodate sin or condone sinful activity, or pull up to a bar and drink with someone to win them. He's not a lawbreaker. What he did mean, that he, his foremost interest was seeing people come to Christ. Willing to sacrifice personal freedoms and liberties to reach them. Willing to accommodate social customs that weren't him. Read about Hudson Taylor, missionary to China in the late 1800s. They, they called him the black devil because he wore a black robe like they did in England. He said, i got to be done with that. So he dressed like the Chinese that he was around. He even cut the head in his forehead and wore a, a waist-length pigtail to reach them. They say that 800,000 people probably came to Christ because of his mission. We're willing to mingle into the lives of people that are different than us. Get outside of our comfort zone, and for the sake of the gospel, we serve them. Find a way to serve lost people and enter their lives and become part of it and find a way to serve them. There's a friend of mine, I think he's probably here. I won't mention his name, but I think he'll remember this. And always had a burden for lost people. His method of choice was kind of revivalism stuff and big events and he said, no, I think it needs to be more personal than that. And so he had a real shift in thinking. He brought broccoli to his neighbors. And that led to a Bible study where the husband got saved and they, they grew. And he has a friend who's an EMT or learning and there are different levels of certification among EMTs. There's a level where you have to put in IV. The next level is do it while you're driving in the ambulance. Okay? All right? He said, you know, and he, the guy couldn't get it. He said, then jab me. I'll ride along. You poke me till you get it. Wow. I wouldn't even dream of doing that. <laughs> and my wife has small veins. And she gets a pincushion every time. And you volunteer. But he understood this. He enters his life to serve him that he might reach him. Find a way to serve them. Number three, spend time with them. A disciple is someone that you connect with personally. You become part of their life. You maybe lead them to Christ. You help them to grow in Him. You spend time with them, which is probably why we don't do it enough, because it's simpler to go to church, pay our tithe, and pray and go home, which is we don't do without that, but it's more than that. We have to spend time with them. Jesus did here. He spent time. Even if you look at um, in Matthew 9 earlier, Interesting, the same chapter earlier uh, in these days. Look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10. Um, he found Matthew, uh, not the Republican, but the publican. He was a tax collector, you know that. Sitting at the tax booth, at least some of you are still awake, which is good. 
He said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now he's a disciple, believer in Christ. And so Jesus reclined at table in his house. <gasps> and behold, many tax collectors with the scum of the earth back in that day and other sinners <laughs> reclining at table with him and his disciples. And so the Pharisees said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing rubbing shoulders with them? And Jesus, when he heard it, said, those who are well have the need of a physician, but those who are sick spiritually go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came to not to call those righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus spent time with lost people, even in someone else's house. You can, have, you can go to someone else's house who's an unbeliever and have them in your house, and God says that's Okay. We have a lot of common with unsaved people. Invite them to your house, especially pastors. Let them see that you don't wear what you do behind the pulpit. You wear jeans or cargo shorts. You have a dog and kids and you like to hunt and fish. Yeah. Wow, it just destroys all the preconceived ideas of what a preacher is. Invite them to come to your house or be willing to go to their house, but somehow spend time with them. Sometimes it's just talking with them. Most every conversation, convictingly, could be turned to a gospel conversation. I don't do enough of that, but I did by the grace of God. We got to our campers here. I keep it here for a couple of weeks. And I come up for Women's Renew uh, in a couple of weeks. And I need new tires, so I, had, I found a place in Ankeny uh, that is called Fast Tire. So I had Goodyear tires put on. I brought it in. They got it done. And the guy said, hey, guess why I've been called fast tire? I said, why? Because look it. They said, are you done already? Like 45 minutes, they were done. That's why they call us fast tire. I said, wow. I said, when I was an engineer living in Alaska, we had something called the fast Alaskan. It was Ketchikan's version of a, a fast food store. A sit-down luau would be faster than the fast Alaskan. <laughs> Nothing is done fast in Alaska. But that was their name. I said, so that was fast to me. He said, you're an engineer? I said, yeah. My uncle worked for Bechtel. I said, he did? What's the name of your company? S.J. Groves. Really? I said, yeah, we, co we, yeah, we joined venture with Peter Kiewit. out of oil. He said, really? Wow. I said, he said, well, what do you do now? I said, I could tell you that. Got my whole story because of, hey, I heard something called the Fast Alaskan. It's by the grace of God that became a talking point his name is Seth. Could you pray for Seth? I don't know what to do next with Seth. I don't think any tires again in a month, I hope. <laughs> uh, although, although we did get a puncture, and that's how I found out about him. And I said, I came back because he gave good service. So pray for Seth. But it was a start. Spend some time talking with them, inviting them to be part of your life. You'll be surprised how many are willing to hang around people that know Christ. And God may give you favor with them. And fourthly, be strategic. Be strategic. What I mean by that, what's your plan for reaching people with the gospel? We have to be strategic. It's not likely going to happen. Uh, it can become a, a, a second nature to us, but even then we have to be purposeful in where we go and how to start a conversation and, and how to make an appeal for the gospel. We have to learn how to be strategic and focused. And, and Jesus did. Um, here he, he went among the villages and he went where people lived and mingled with them. In John chapter 4 he said, I have to go through Samaria because there are people there that people don't reach. You know, we go around it, right? I must go through Samaria because there's a well there named Jacob's well. The people congregate there and so they, we meet people there. He met the woman at the well and she came to Christ. He was very purposeful. Even the apostle Paul said, you know, I bet, he said, I supposed... He said, I su don't you suppose there's some women meeting down by the river on the Sabbath day? And you know what? There were. And so he went where they were, where he supposed they would be, and mingled with them and shared Christ. And Lydia came to Christ, whose heart the Lord opened. The heart of man plans his way, and the Lord directs his steps. We need some type of a plan. We lived in South Des Moines, and Sandy homeschooled our kids in our first pastorate. Her world was pretty small. I mean, snotty old kids, you know, 
and diapers and food and homeschooling and caring for the home like a Proverbs 31 woman should, and she is a good one. She's a rare gem. But her world was small. She said, Lord, I need to be someone in my world because my world is kind of small, but I go grocery shopping once a week. She prayed that God would open a door at the grocery store, and He did. He went through Marilyn's line, and she just had a burden for Marilyn, and they began, she'd go through every Wednesday to Marilyn's line, and whether it and I with Logan, she'd go to Marilyn's line and wait for that. And so it began with, you know, how you doing? My name's Sandy. My name's Marilyn. How's your week going? All the small talk for a couple of months. Then it's, how's you going? And she says, not so good. So Sandy says, what's going on? I said, my husband Bill is in the hospital. He's connected to tubes, have no idea what's going on, and I'm scared. So she said, do you suppose Tim could so see him? And she said, he would do that? That was her answer. It's happened several times. He would do that? I never met Bill, never met Marilyn, and so I went to see Bill, and Bill was connected to hoses, and I decided to share a gospel with him, and Bill got saved in his hospital room. He just did. It didn't happen often, but it did. That was the day, and I didn't know if, he, if, if you could die today was probably real for him. And uh, we did a Bible study. I did a John study with him in Maryland, confirmed that Bill had come to Christ, and then she came to Christ, and they had friends and turned our church around. Right, Doug? That type of a thing. But that was strategic on her part to do that. You can connect with people in all the things that you like to do. I was putting away our camper last fall, and and we were at Sudsy's right next to the police station. It's a great place to store your camper. <laughs> They're like right our neighbors. And so I'm on a nice fall day and hooking up my camper to set it up for the winter. And a guy, a couple campers over, is just done hooking his up. And I'm kind of thinking I should probably talk to him. Nah. And God said, you didn't talk to me. I said, okay, I'll talk with him. You know, that little inner thing. And so I did. I said, hi, what do you say? I said, hi, I'm Tim. He gave me his name. It can be that hard. I said, do you like the camp? Yeah. He says, you've been on a camping lawn? No, we just got out of the pandemic, and where you like to go? So we go there, too. We go to Cherry Glen and Prairie Flower, and, and uh, I said, what do you do? And he said, well, what do you do? I got my story again. How I, came, how I was an engineer, heard the gospel, got saved, was a pastor, was, was working with churches all across the state, one of which was Ankeny Baptist, one of which is Community Baptist. He said, do you know Sean Lumberg? I said, Pastor, is Sean here tonight? Pastor of Community Baptist. I said, yeah. He said, he's a great guy. I said, I know. He said, he's my neighbor. <laughs> I said, you need to listen to him. So I don't know where it's going to go from there, but that's how it can begin. Be strategic. What would you say to someone who's interested? How do you make a connection with people? How do you start a conversation? Learn to ask questions. You'd be a great conversationalist. That's the key. Hi, my name's so-and-so, what's your name? You'll have a friend in a world where people don't have friends. My wife went down to the mail pod in her cul-de-sac, and she said, how's your day going? Boom, the floodgates opened. About everything. Her son, we had a pro football player living in our neighborhood, which is kind of cool, and all the stuff that goes with that. You have to be strategic. How would you make an appeal for someone to come to Christ if they're interested? You shared the gospel, you're not done. No. Next is, would you like to put your trust in Christ, and what would prevent you from doing that? You have to learn to make an appeal. And if they make a profession, what would you say next? And so you have to learn how to be strategic. Number five, we have to share Christ with them if God opens a door. We don't base our friendships on whether they come to Christ or not, that's just using people, right? So if they don't come to Christ right away, we still be their friend, and God might use someone else. He might use you later, but we don't make that a kid. We want to be able at some point if God opens a door to share Christ with them. Three things. We need to be clear when we do that. We need to be clear. Paul prayed that he would speak with clarity as he ought to speak. As a pastor for 28 plus years, <clears throat> yeah, 23 plus years in Carol. Hi, babe. She's probably not listening, but she's praying for me. You can see why she prays for me, yes. Oh, don't laugh too hard. Um, people applying for membership, and whether they're newly saved or oldly saved, tell us how you came to Christ. You know what you hear? Well, I prayed and got saved. Great. I, what do you mean by that? Or, you know, I was 
walk, driving around the road and committing my life to Christ. Great, but what is, they missed the three elements of the gospel not once mentioned. Christ died for my sins. Talk about sin and Christ and saving faith or you haven't been clear. Now, I think I know what, what we mean by that, but we're typically not as clear as we think we are. Just ask your kids what, you, what they think you meant by what you just told them. Try that. You've made announcements in church on Sunday morning. People go, oh, if I'd only known. <laughs> no bulletins in heaven. I'm pretty sure of that. And if it would, it wouldn't be heaven. Christ died for my sins is the gospel. Buried, risen again to pay for my debt of sin. We have to talk about sin and talk about Christ and talk about saving faith, a response. In a nutshell, we have a problem that is sin we could do nothing about. Christ is God's provision for my sin because He died in my place. And we have to make it personal by trusting Him, deciding that I want Him to be my Savior. That's the gospel. We have to be clear. We also have to be patient. We all want things done now. <laughs> You learn not to pray for patience, right? Because you know where that gets you. <laughs> but God is patient, not wanting any to perish. He gives people time. And though it is urgent, we can't presume on tomorrow. If you're here tonight and not saved, you dare not presume you'll be alive tomorrow. Truthfully, life is a vapor. Life is uncertain. Life is short. People die in car accidents going to prayer meeting. It happened recently. she was a believer and knew Christ and she's with him. God is patient. And so we must be, Paul told Timothy, you must not be striving or quarrelsome, but be patient towards all men. And patience correcting those that oppose. If God perhaps may give them repentance and knowledge of the truth, you have to be patient with all men. Maybe not share the whole gospel the first time you talk to someone. You should if it's urgent and they're open. It may take some time for them to get it. There'll be disappointments. Even Paul said when he preached, someone said, Paul, you're crazy. Or some said, Paul, will see you again. Or some believe. So we get all types of responses. And God may use someone else. We also need to be confident, be clear, be patient, and be confident in the gospel. Without apology, without being harsh, without being mean-spirited or arrogant, we're confident if you come to Christ, He will save you. He died on the cross as a historical fact of history attested to by 500-plus witnesses who saw Him alive from the dead. In a court of law, nothing can refute that. And so we're not arrogant and push people before they're ready and we have to be confident. Paul was eager to go to Rome. The word ready means eager because he was unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. He knew that the gospel could penetrate people's heart and save them if they would trust him. And so the word witness in Acts chapter 1, to be witnesses of him, means to speak verbally with confidence, without apology, what we know to be true by experience in knowing him. I can tell you I know my wife I know I'm married. I was there when we said I do. I mean, who would not be there when you say I do? I know that without apology, and so you can know that too. He told us He'd be with us. He told us we'd be, receive the Spirit. He told us if you believe in Him, He will save you. If you call upon Him, He will save you. If you put your trust in Him, he will give you eternal life. We know that to be true. And number six, and we'll be done. We have to seek God for them. Needed an S, and I don't think it's too big of a hammer to make it fit. That's my disclaimer. But to pray for them. We intercede for them. Um, Paul did. He prayed. He said, you pray for me. Paul said, yep, yeah, Paul said, you pray for me to the Ephesians in chapter 6, that, the, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly. You want words to say? Ask God to give you the words to say. That God may open to us a door for the gospel, that I may make it clear, Colossians chapter 4, 
which is how he ought to speak. So we prayed for boldness and open doors and clarity. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, after seeing the crowds and moved with compassion of those that were helpless, hapless, harassed people needing a Savior, which was him, he said, you need to pray. That's, not the, that's the first thing he did. You need to pray because the harvest is plentiful. And the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, which is Him, to send out workers into the harvest. This is not a missionary appeal, though it could be. This is that God would thrust forth uh, outside our comfort zone. It's like throwing a dog off the end of the dock to see if he can swim and, and, and thrust them out to be workers for me because there's, there's all acres and acres of corn to be harvested and combined and one combine to do it. And so we pray for workers. We pray for boldness. We pray as God makes His appeal through us that God would do a work. We seek God for them. As believer priests, we intercede for the unsaved. We bring them to the throne of grace. On behalf of them we go, Lord, please open their hearts. I don't know how to meet my neighbor. I don't know what to do next with the neighbor that cuts his long shirt, but now cares about his yard. And they want me to help them. So what do I do next with them? So you pray that God would tell you what to do. So we seek God for them and wisdom that God would use. This is, these are part of what going looks like. They're simple but essential things in, that any one of us can do. Because if God has saved you, He's called you to make disciples for Him. Because Jesus loves lost people, and we should too. And by the grace of God, He's given that job to us. Isn't that amazing and humbling and terrifying all at the same time? We get to be part of this, co-labors with Him to bring the gospel. And I have not been as faithful as I should be. I, I will tell you that without apology. It, it's embarrassing to say, but I haven't always been. But when I have been, by the grace of God, there's been wonderful fruit. Your life will never be the same if you hear someone profess Christ sitting in your car, sitting in your boat, sitting in, around their dining room table, and they put their faith in God. You get to watch a new birth. It'll transform your life. So let's, in the process of going, make disciples and care about our unsaved friends. I'm going to close with this. We're at the end of our time. If you're here tonight and just really don't understand what we're talking about, that's okay. For 28 years of my life, I had no clue what this meant. As a church-going, more religious, arrogant um, Lutheran is what I was. I was proud of my walk, proud of my church, uh, proud of my history. I was a generation. I was proud of that and Luku the gospel. And I was, that was me. And it took multiple people to get me into the Word of God and knock on my door and challenge me about coming to Christ. It took several years for me to get it. God drew me to Himself and finally understood. And by His grace, I put my trust in Christ 39 years ago. But I remember not being saved and not understanding. It said, nothing to be ashamed of. But it is urgent. And you hear me, someone cared about you enough to want to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave his life for you. You're a sinner needing a Savior like all of us. You know what the verse that convicted me? As an arrogant, condescending, moral person who judged people by their morality and whether they went to church or not and whether they kept their lawn nice or not was that there is no difference for all have sinned. I was no different than any other sinner that I looked down. I was no different than, I said, I was no, I'm no better than the drunk in the gutter, and I had seen them no longer. And that convicted me. So today, this is your chance to make a decision for Christ, or at least talk to someone who knows Him. Could you commit to do that tonight? You're here because someone cared about you and loved you, wants you to hear about Jesus Christ who loved you and gave his life for you so you can have a heaven, he'll give you eternal life. He'll take you to heaven because of what he did. Because someone has to pay for your sin. And Jesus chose to do that for you. But you have to acknowledge your sin and accept him as your Savior, and he'll give you heaven, eternal life forever. I encourage you to talk to someone tonight. For those of us that know him, uh, this is convicting to me. I can do better. I can be more strategic. Let's leave here different than when he came to make disciples in the process of going and see 
God build his kingdom and his church. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful tonight for this occasion to get together as men. Uh, Lord, these men have taken time away from everything else they could be doing, even their families, and some of them their work, other things that are demanding, and they have chosen to be here because they love you, they love the fellowship, they love the food, they love the fun time, they love the focus on the Word. And Father, your Word has challenged tonight the life of Christ that we have to love people like He did. In the process of going, make a disciple with your help and with your, with your power. For anyone here tonight who's never come to Christ, that they would think about it and talk to someone who brought them and say, I don't understand, but help me understand. They can open a Bible and show them from your word what you say about what Jesus did for them. Father, for the rest of us that know Christ, we have been commissioned by the Son of God, authority given to Him to make disciples for Him, to be His instrument, to be His vessel of the good news that God making His appeal through us, putting that gospel in jars of clay, and yet you working through our words about Christ to bring people to your Son. Help us to do something to begin the journey and make it more focused, and then to watch you bless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.